Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through LGBT storytelling. <laughs> okay. Um, You're recording? We're recording. Uh, you do yours first. Hi, uh, I'm Mike Balaban. I'm a 66-year-old who's been out of the closet for about 40 years. Uh, I had a long career in finance and consulting with an international focus. I then began uh, giving a lot more attention to a lengthy collection of photos that I had taken for my own purposes throughout my upbringing, many of them on on gay vacations and on gay issues. Uh, And I posted them on Instagram and I've generated a a really surprisingly large following of people who are very passionate about this. And so I decided to spend time focusing on the issues that were raised in my coming out and my maturation as a gay man. That was beautiful. So much better than mine. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Caleb Holland. I'm a 25-year-old documentarian uh, from the South, originally from South Carolina, living and working in Atlanta now. I found your page, Mike, on Instagram about a year ago um, and became obsessed. And I came here to New York to meet you, and uh, we developed this concept for a podcast. So let's talk about why we're here, what we're going to be doing. Um, so essentially, the thought is we are going to exchange photos and uh, share our stories. Uh, from our respective pasts. And I'll come up with two each episode, and you'll come up with one. Yes. And then we'll kind of describe what was going on and ask each other questions about you know, what was in our minds and what our uh, experiences were. Absolutely. I'm really excited. Me too. All right. Let's see the first one. (laughs) All right. Well, um, we've decided to focus each episode on a theme. And for this episode, I think we would look back at our photos that represent when we first began to be aware that we were attracted to members of our own sex. Yes. So here's the first photo uh, I want to show you for this episode. Uh, And it was taken when I was 10 in a local swimming pool with a bunch of my friends. Amazing. Wow. So what's going on here in the photo? Well, I've got my arms along uh, along my sides akimbo, as they call it, and we're just, you know, posing as 10-year-old boys in the deep south in 1962 uh, for whoever was taking the picture of us. And we were part of... um, this rural uh, high school would gather all the local youth and take them in yellow school buses to a recreational complex in the country 10 miles away for the day and then bring them back at the end of the day. And we'd swim all day, we'd play pool games, we'd eat food. And during a break, I was about 10 and my younger brother was about seven. We went exploring outside the confines of the fence that ringed the perimeter. And we found this door that led to an alleyway, a crawl space. And in it, on one side was the men's locker room, and on the other side was the women's locker room. And there were knot holes that allowed you to peek into each of those rooms. And at 10, I was looking into the boys' locker room, saying to my younger brother, come over here and take a look at this, while he was looking into the girls' locker room, going, no, no, you come over here and take a look at this. And that was my first formative memory that all I wanted to do was look at boys. Did you communicate that to, to him? Did he know that? You know, I remember saying, what you know, come over here. But I also must have known by 10 that you didn't do that. So I suspect either I thought he might share that interest or it was a slip. But I did, I did communicate it. Did this ever come up later? This, like, did you ever talk about this later? We did not. And when I eventually came out to him, as I began to do with others at 24, he already kind of knew, perhaps partly because of that, although I'm not sure he remembered that incident. But... 
you know, you kind of know when somebody you're living with that closely for all those years, it's not a huge surprise. And meanwhile, of course, he became an, a, a, an absolute, I don't want to say womanizer, but, you know, steadfast heterosexual. And, uh, and that was clear from his age seven. Did you know what being gay was? Like, when did you figure that out? Oh, gosh, no. Uh, when I grew up, which was in the 1950s and 60s, and in rural northern Florida, Alabama border, um, there was no understanding or even representation in the media, in you know, in your life of anything to do with homosexuality. It was a psychiatric disorder in the, in the catalog of illnesses. What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who... You did everything you could to not be gay, to stifle any potential interest in boys, and certainly not to, to demonstrate that to anyone. When did you start to learn what it was? Well... You know, there were references to homosexuality and perverts and all that here and there sprinkled throughout the news and the press. There'd been witch hunts in the government in the 50s trying to root out homosexuals. So you get the constant message drummed into your head that this is not acceptable. And then you do everything you can to both hide it and to root it out of yourself because nobody wanted to be that way. It's interesting to me that you, the way that you kind of discovered it was through what you were drawn to. For me, like my first awareness of it for me was just being different and be, being more feminine and right. being like just kind of uh, different. And I didn't even realize like until high school of my attraction. So for you, were you were you always like uh, masculine growing up and, and did you fit in in that way? Yeah, we have diametrically opposite experiences. For you not fitting in, being different, maybe being considered affected or effeminate or whatever was part of your identity. And then only later did you associate that with it, there being an attraction to boys that came along with it. For me, who knows how much of it is uh, you know, environmental and how much of it is, is hereditary. Um, but I was raised in an area where you had to be masculine or you were going to be harassed. So I quickly learned to play all the sports and to embrace all the activities and the behaviors that demonstrated that I was not unlike others, even though deep inside I was scared to death that I was different. After those experiences, uh, did that change how you started to behave or um, uh, did you reflect on those moments and, and, and try to start you know, figuring yourself out? Gosh, no. I mean, right up until I was out of college, Everything was about fitting in, being the quote-unquote best little boy in the world, getting all A's, participating in every activity, playing sports. Again, the badge of masculinity in the communities I grew up in was being an athlete. But I jumped in full, you know, head first, and I played football, basketball, but didn't have the talent. Pole vaulted and ran sprints on the track team, and you know, sports became an important part of my life. And because I didn't demonstrate any of the characteristics that might cause anybody to figure out that I was gay, I was successful in hiding. And in my point of mind, there are two types of personalities, and you and I embody them. Those who are able, either adept at or somehow manage to hide their true nature, partly from themselves, certainly from others, and therefore pass. And the result is the scars of homophobia are internal. They're self-inflicted. Nobody is telling me I'm gay, calling me names, excluding me. You know, that's all me hating myself for being something that I can't 
tell anyone. Well, and I, I, I feel like there is something interesting about that idea of, uh, you know, I, because I've known so many people and had so many friends who um, were like very effeminate and very, very like obviously gay, but it, they were not ready to come out. And I have thought about um, how difficult it is in a certain way when you show every sign of being gay, but you're not ready to own that yet. And and in that way, it can be... Um, do you know what I mean? Like, you're almost outed just by being yourself. You, you are outed. I mean, you may not acknowledge it that, you, in fact, you are gay. Every moment was spent making sure that I fit in and that I was able to hide and that... Ideally, in the meantime, I'm trying to change myself. I'm trying to root out all those attractions. I'm, I'm saying, please, Lord, let me not, you know, have to think about a guy to get excited when I'm, you know, jerking off. I felt really desperate because I couldn't rid myself of this scourge, which, remember, in that time was the worst thing you could imagine being. Just imagine you live in an environment where the word gay didn't exist. Homosexual, faggot, cornholer. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of terms. It was the worst epithet you could use to describe someone. There was not one character on TV, radio, or, or film who was gay. So the message sent by society was, you don't want to be this way. We're going to disown you. We're going to discredit you. We're going to jail you. It wasn't part of the universe of possibility. You did what it took to hide, and if you couldn't, you weathered all the abuse you took. The American Psychiatric Association, considering homosexuality an actual medical disorder, was removed not was not removed until 1973, and by then I was 21. In what way were you trying to overcome it? You're trying to fight your nature in every way, in every instance that you can, to make it through, hoping that you'll figure out some way to be like everybody else, because the alternative was was unthinkable. We moved out of that southern conservative area in high school. By then, it was acceptable, and it's funny to now go back and I've met with and seen some of these people and recollected our memories, and they're entirely different. On the one hand, I spent my childhood trying to fit in. Being the only Jewish family in a southern Baptist county, northern parents who emigrated were, and were kind of carpetbaggers and never really accepted as being locals, well-to-do relative to a lot of fairly unwell-off people, academics among, uh, among jocks, liberals among conservatives, and I was left-handed and gay to boot. And so I spent my life trying to deny all of that, and yet the, the young woman, now a good friend of mine, who, uh, whose mother was a minister, told me, Mike, y- y'all don't understand. We, we, were, we thought you were exotic. We wanted to be you. My mother taught me the Jews were the chosen people. We were all blonde, blonde, blue haired, blue eyed, brown haired, and you got, you know, your father had red hair, your mother was darker, you know, you were like, so there I was hiding every part of my essence that was different, and they were wanting to be me. And if only I could have been aware of that and somehow, you know, benefited from that as a child, but we all live in our own little micro environments, right? What do you feel like the lesson is there? Well, you know, I can tell you the lesson now, but to, I couldn't have benefited. The lesson is be yourself. Did, did you, um, before before that conversation, like, did you feel anger or kind of resentment uh, around the community you grew up in? You mean back in the time when I lived there or after I'd left? Mainly after. No, I just, because it was such a southern, conservative, homophobic region, I didn't give them much credit. And 
at the time I left, that was probably to some degree justified. And yet I've, I've already just explained how they, they were not so close-minded as they thought. They, they wanted to be closer to us. Um, so I think I would probably shortchange them. But on the other hand, it was very hard to grow up in that environment and be so different. So I guess we're going to go to me now. <laughs> okay, so I, I did select a photo, so I'll pass that to you. Um, so this is, this is a photo of me um, in high school. So probably ninth, 10th grade, um, and standing in front of an Andy Warhol print. Um, and for me, art was where I started to realize I was different and started to realize, you know, that I was gay. What year was this photo of you and... Probably, this was around 2008. Okay. Yeah. And is that Michael Jackson in the back? It is, okay. yes. <laughs> A very flattering picture of Michael Jackson. Yes. Image. <laughs> um, and you say art was how you first realized it. Well, explain that a little bit more. Okay, good question. I mean, so I always um, was just very creative. I loved um, all kinds of art, and that was something that actually my family really encouraged. I think they saw um, some amount of skill there. Um, and so for me, it was like it was this it was this escape and this way for me to be able to express myself and to be able to do the kinds of things I wanted to do. Um, but in a way that was allowed because so many things that I wanted to do were not allowed. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that I think back to um, are these like really simple, like small moments that um, actually had a big impact on me. And so, so one thing is one difference between us that I, I find is like, um, I think I was, I was very stubborn. And so like I grew up, I did grow up around people, especially a father um, who would have loved for me to be involved in sports and would have loved for me to be this more uh, macho, you know, Southern guy. Um, and um, I actually may have probably enjoyed some of that, but I think it so turned me off because I was like, I'll show you. Like, I, you know, I'm going to be this, like, artsy, you know, creative, you know, guy. When I was younger, um, it took me a really long time actually to figure out I was gay. I mean, I, 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 I think I started to figure it out in ninth grade. By 10th grade, I was pretty sure. But I always knew I was very different. And, um, and that was pointed out to me like incessantly by everyone around me. And I thought it was just that I was an artist or I, or I was you know, more creative or just different. And there were moments where I you know, realized I had possibly some attraction. Um, but sex and, and like uh, any kind of sexuality, um, straight or gay, was so, so shunned and so like um, shamed by the religious, you know, family I grew up with um, that I, I didn't even think to think that far, really, because I thought, you know, there, that was just off limits anyway. So when your hormones started raging at yeah. 13 and 14... You didn't have fantasies. You didn't, you know, have sexual thoughts in your mind about real people or Sears catalog images or whatever, like a lot of gay men say that's when they first knew. So essentially, like, the first sex talk I had and the only sex talk I had um, was with my mom in a Sears parking lot. <laughs> and she told me I was it was ninth grade. And it was um, amazingly, I did not know 
even what sex was and I was in ninth grade like that I mean I was a little old to not know anything about it yet and so my mom told me she was like she was like all I want to tell you about sex is that if you (laughs) if you ever have sex and anything penetrates you 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 get sick like there's some there's something in your body that will make you sick a person or you a man a person yeah that that if there's if if basically like if you allow yourself to be penetrated that um that that there's something biologically that will cause uh, sickness um but that was the one and only sex talk i ever so she was essentially trying to dissuade you from ever having sex but how did she you know how did she rationalize that with wanting to have a kid as a married couple well she meant she definitely meant a guy like she meant she meant anal sex yeah so um so that was i mean and and it was kind of it was obviously frustrating that that was the only sex talk i had but there were um my mom watched a lot of like hgtv and like food network and that kind of thing and so there would be these guys on there who were gay and and for me that was like that was the first time i started to think like okay maybe this this is something that people can be um but it didn't uh it didn't it didn't it came more to me from this perspective of just being different and being creative and in fact like in that way um my work has always been um related to being gay and and um i think that well, it's how so i mean just because you're a filmmaker or an artist doesn't necessarily mean you're gay so how has your work always been related to being gay it was my it was my window it was it was the thing i was allowed to do and i think that because of that like it was it became so ingrained with my personality and and almost um uh fused with the work that i wanted to do does that make sense i think maybe what you're saying is was your channel to a freedom of self-expression yes and you didn't know that self-expression would lead you to being gay right but it did yes that's true that's true coming of age as a gay man and coming of age as a sexual person were almost separated. Sure. And so, um, so yes, and I mean, the way, I mean, Tumblr and this and that, like, that's how I started to figure out, like, what sexuality was and what that could look like for me. Um, but for the most part, my identity as a gay man always came through, um, self-expression and art and like my pursuit of being this person I wanted to be more than like what that meant sexually. So, but you've described to me separately how our tracks are entirely opposite that, um, you were more forced to deal with being different and then only later associated that with the fact that there really was underlying homosexuality in, in your personality along with being different. Yeah, so so let me, um, actually, so this journal that I found and pulled for this, right. you know, these things I had written down, um, uh, you know, I'll tell you a few of them. Like one thing was um, growing up, you know, anytime I said anything that had kind of a gay inflection, I had to say it over, say it over, say it over until, until it, you know, and that's almost, that's kind of crazy making, right. you know what I mean? It's like, it it really teaches you that you're you're totally you know wrong or screwed up in, in some way that you need to be fixed right. and that that starts to internalize itself um i i was obsessed with wanting to be a fashion designer actually and and i still love fashion but um so when i was in third grade like that was my big obsession and there was a there was a movie which people my age would <laughs> recognize i don't know if you would but um lizzie mcguire do you know who that is 
So she was like this um, Disney star, and so she had this movie, and she was like going to be a, a you know she was she had this scene, and it was actually to RuPaul's um, "You Better Work, You Better Work," do you know? Yeah. And so like um, so she was so she came out in all these like crazy almost Gaga like you know dresses, um, and so from then on for like a couple years I was just obsessed with drawing dresses, but I had to hide that like I would you know try to be as discreet as possible and hide all and these then, like um, you know like I, I remember one birthday asking my grandparents for a bonsai tree like you know and I was in like elementary school or middle school most like, people haven't heard of that until they're 30 right and so and, my, and so um they 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 told me they brought so they ended up getting me like this like lego set and like this like you know like like sports shit and i was like i was like i was like i i asked for a bonsai tree and, and they were like well we found this boy and you know in the toy store and we asked him what he would like and he said this and we got that and i was like what the fuck well they were they were addressing what they wanted you to be not yes. what you were yeah i mean and same thing with my parents like i i remember like I, it was like such a fight because i wanted an easy bake oven right. and we even went to the store like like considering whether they were going to buy it or not and then they decided you know not to let me have one the irony is that my brother and i in the late 50s and early 60s had a, a easy bake oven really and oh we had actually and this is your story not mine but we actually were given dolls Wow. Yeah, and my brother ended up as straight as can be, but we each had dolls, like you know, like a girl would have. I, but you were in a resistant environment the entire time that was fighting everything you were. Yeah. I was in one where they were not fighting what I was, but I was doing the fighting. And then last little note before we move on. Um, so I, I, I actually took journals all the time, and um, I found this page from it uh, from 2005. Um, I guess I was 12th. And I wrote, I'm sick of people calling me girly. Tonight my dad, this is hilarious. <laughs> Tonight my dad couldn't believe I'd rather watch Martha Stewart than some stupid boxing movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have to fulfill my destiny though. <laughs> and you have. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and so and so I chose the, um, the photo of me with the Warhol piece because uh, Warhol connected me to this person that I wanted to be. And it was like, it was, it was also the thing that I, you know, my, my father who raised me was my stepfather. And, um, I remember, you know, so many times when he, uh, would just shit all over, like the things I was interested in. And we were, we were in like, uh, probably Philadelphia or somewhere one time. And there was a Warhol exhibit I really wanted to go to in either middle school or high school. And I remember him telling me about, he said, you know, Andy Warhol got AIDS at Studio 54 and died. And I was like, that is not what happened. Talk about dream crusher anyway, right? Right, yeah. And I mean, and he would tell me all the time, he was like, you know, you're going to, I grew up in this little town called Anderson. And he was like, you know, you're going to grow up uh, and be just like us. You're going to live in Anderson. You're going to have a family um, and you're going to give up all this, you know, dumb stuff you talk about. Talk about limiting someone's vision and trying to put them into a cookie cutter mold. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm dying to see your next photo. My second photo is a picture of me with my junior prom date in my white tux jacket with my little black bow tie and my Beatles mop haircut. Back when I was in college, the Beatles were like the, the cat's meow was what we used to call it. Um, and Barb, who was my date uh, to the junior prom, and by the way, I didn't go to the senior prom, I stayed home. Same here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, be, you know, I... I felt peer pressure. Yeah. 
I wasn't attracted to her or any woman for that matter. I can remember the number of times I tried to make myself, to will myself into becoming attracted to women. It just wouldn't work. But of course, you know, you want to fit in and junior prom is a milestone. And so I asked her and she said yes. And here we're all dressed up, her holding her bouquet of flowers as this backdrop of these gold curtains behind us. This is, you know, 1969. Wow. And... Um, you know, I was really uncomfortable because in that day era, and probably not too different now, you went to the prom and afterwards you went out, did what you call parking. It would be like a, an outcropping up on a, a nearby mountaintop or a lover's lane or whatever. You drive the car and you'd sit there and you'd neck. <laughs> and that if necking is an old-fashioned word for kissing. Yes. You know, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I remember there was another couple that went with us in the car, a guy and a girl seated in the back, me in the driver's seat and, and Barb next to me. And we went to this lover's lane and then we made out. And I am deathly afraid she's uh, that I'm not gonna be able to be responsive, that in fact we're gonna have to do something more than just kiss right. and, that, and that I will be found out. And I didn't get excited, we did make out, it didn't go any further and I managed to escape, but it was so uncomfortable. And at that point in time, you know, I mean, everybody else was exploring and having girlfriends and, you know, this is less true now, but it's still true to some extent. Gay men typically don't realize and accept who we are in, in my era until you're in your 20s or 30s. Now the average coming out age apparently among millennial youth is like 14, Yeah. right? Um, but again, you couldn't do that. You would have been ostracized to no end. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, we don't learn how to date and how to deal with the emotional issues that come up when someone rejects you or when you, you know, when you break up and you're crushed until a decade or two after most of society. And we have this internalized homophobia that we have to deal with. And so um, this is just a moment in time where I'm still trying on heterosexual normalcy and it's not fitting at all. And I know it, but I can't figure a way out. So what were you feeling when this photo was taken? Well, I'm sure there was, you know, some minor element of pride and, you know, I'm with an attractive girl and I'm doing the normal thing like everybody else and I'm, I'm you know, maybe I can do this. Yeah. But underneath this was, was this dread. Do you think that she um, uh, had a great night or do you think she noticed that it, w it wasn't, like, clicking? I don't think she probably noticed because um, the interesting thing is is that what was expected of boys and girls as you go back in time was less than it is now. In what way? Well, boys and girls, I don't even, I don't know if they call it hooking up like we do in the gay community or whatever, but boys and girls seem to have sex with each other and have no expectations afterwards a lot today. I mean, at least you might, you might fool around with a number of guys if you're a 15-year-old girl and nobody would call you a slut. Right. Back then, that wasn't the case. Right. But it was an era when it was, it was all you know, I don't know the right way to put this, you know, Mickey Mouse, and it was it was innocent, right? Right. So you could hide if you were gay and had a boyfriend or had sex with someone and no one would know yeah. unless they caught you. The downside of that was there were no images in the media. There was nothing to turn to to learn about it. There was no way to find someone else like you. Yeah. You were usually in the dark thinking you were the only one. At the time when I was in high school, the expectations of me that night probably weren't all that tremendous. Right. And so the fact that I didn't deliver more than just making out was probably didn't probably not stand out in her okay. mind. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, Mike, I thank you so much for for this. Like, I um, I I I really admire your work. For the past year, I've been obsessed. I love everything, um, and being here with you, getting to hear these stories, um, it's just it's incredible. And and I I hope that we can have a lot more you know conversations like this because I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Well, I'm as um, appreciative and respecting what you're doing and have done as a documentarian in terms of producing a trans-focused uh, film that's already out in being hired by a major Hollywood uh, studio to shoot a, a big budget, uh, you know, background filming on a boy race, you know, and, and so I think we kind of approach the same work from different angles in different time periods. Um, and here we're coming together and meeting in the middle. If I were to draw any conclusions from our, our, our episode today, it seems to me as if you spent an entire childhood and adolescence dealing with opprobrium from your parents and those around you for the difference that you weren't. It, it kind of took a decade or more of a, starting in this place that is so alien to my background. Yeah. Because by comparison, I grew up in an era where things were very, very different and you couldn't be gay. You had that same circumstance in terms of your own micro environment with your family being religious and anti-gay but not socially but not socially yeah i grew up in an area where it was everywhere although i was in a family that was fairly liberal yeah and then might or might not have been able to accept my difference if i'd been willing to admit it so and yet obviously we both end up being true to our to our inner selves and ultimately it's okay but in dealing with the damage that we inflicted on ourselves in my case or the damage that was inflicted on us in your case and getting through that to the point where we are self-loving and self-respecting and can have partners and deal with all the problems that come up, uh, you know, it, it took us a long time and yet here we are. Absolutely. Well, from one documentarian to another, <laughs> thank you so much. This has been amazing and My I look pleasure. forward to seeing more. <laughs> Me too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. You can view the photos that Caleb and I discussed in today's broadcast. Just go to bammer.co, episode one.